So RoboCop was on, and obviously, being that it was RoboCop, I had to watch most of it before I went to bed and decided I have probably watched enough RoboCop. RoboCop is one of those fun characters that I don't have any reverence for and also have a lot of reverence for. I really enjoy that first movie, and I remember as a kid thinking I would enjoy it before I was old enough to watch it. And of course, like every R-rated movie from the 80s, I never saw it when I was old enough to watch it. I saw it before I was old enough to watch it, and depending on the franchise, it was either a turning point in my life that dictated what I was going to enjoy for the rest of my life, or it was going to scare the hell out of me. I guess the third option is that it was going to severely disappoint me, and that is the case with RoboCop 1987. That first RoboCop movie from 1987 was, of course, directed by Paul Weirhoven, who, if you end up seeing that movie, or if you didn't know, makes kind of subversive, exploitative, super-violent, borderline parody action movies? And as a kid, I didn't know that. I saw Total Recall and assumed that it was a straight-up action movie that had some crazy science fiction shit in it. And Weirhoven, of course, pioneered the overuse of squibs in an action sequence that would inform my bloodlust for over-the-top violence in action movies, especially those that have super-violent guns in them. But as a kid, pre-watching RoboCop, I was like, oh, well, this is obviously made for me, just like everything out there, even things that are R-rated. It's a superhero movie about a robot cop who endures a difficult time as a regular cop, only to triumph now as a RoboCop. And I guess if you, like, wrote it down, that is kind of what RoboCop ends up being, but if you watch the movie, you're like, oh, this is supposed to be funny. But of course, like, any movie that has any kind of character associated with it, the overlords that owned the intellectual property were like, how can we exploit this and then transform it into a kid's franchise? And I think I was around during the exploitation phase of RoboCop. Not to say that RoboCop 2 was the culmination point. Moreover, it was probably RoboCop 3 and the RoboCop show from 1994 that I went, oh, okay, this is yet another thing made for my demographic. So you can imagine my overwhelming disappointment upon seeing RoboCop for the first time and essentially being like, this guy sucks. He is slow, he's stiff, he can't move, and he loses all the time. What kind of superhero is he supposed to be? And the answer is, he's not. Which, if you're looking at this as a superhero anything in 1987, is 100% on brand for the comics of that time. There's also at least a couple of Frank Miller references in this movie, which of course would lead us to Frank Miller actually taking the reins of the franchise with RoboCop 2 and subsequent RoboCop adaptations in comic books. But of course, there's the outgoing Mayor Miller, who holds a room full of people hostage, and RoboCop takes him down in a sequence that is pulled straight out of Dark Knight Returns when Batman takes down a punker who has kidnapped a child. 
So RoboCop's roots in comics are inexorably tied even from the beginning, even if the movie isn't actually based off of any comic book property. And then there was that 2014 reboot that I don't think anybody saw. Of course, Tiffany and I saw it in theaters, and it was fine. It wasn't actually as bad as, say, the Total Recall reboot from that same time period, but it lacked a lot of charm, and it's the kind of charm that is impossible to replicate thanks to the efforts of not only Weirhoven, but also just the film industry of the 80s. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's very much a product of its time, and the fact that anybody even remembers it, much less reveres it, or the fact that companies will make startlingly realistic recreations of characters or iconography from that movie in the form of toys and models and statues is just really surprising and admittedly cool. But that whole subversive angle of RoboCop, the fact that it's like an anti-action movie couched in an action movie, is not just a hallmark of Paul Weirhoven's career if you consider Starship Troopers and the fact that it would take, what, 25, 30 years for people to recognize, oh, that movie's also a joke. But also the fact that in the comics, at the same exact time, they're producing these subversive tales that are sending up the genre and maybe holding a mirror up to the dregs or the darker aspects of American society. And the legacy of people not really getting the joke is also pretty inherent when you consider the fact that they made a Watchmen movie that, by and large, is supposed to be cool and glorifies Rorschach, when Rorschach should be anything but glorious, thanks to his depiction from the original comics. But staying on the topic of movies while switching gears tonally from parody and subversion to just you get what you see, they're talking about how this Thunderbolts movie supposedly and allegedly is going to feature the Sentry. Apparently this is all from Twitter speculation, but reliable scoopers speak out about how there's going to be, quote, an evil Superman that needs to be taken down, which if you're suddenly thinking, this sounds a lot like the plot to the upcoming Suicide Squad video game, yeah, I noticed that too. Let's do two stories about a ragtag team of characters, neither of whom could take down Superman, and make the plot about how they have to kill him. If you're not familiar, of course, they are making this Thunderbolts movie for Marvel Studios. It's one of the next movie projects that's coming out from the MCU, and it features a ragtag team of unlikely characters that all pretty much have the same fighting ability and skill set and power set, and so... There was a little bit of criticism lobbed at this concept that otherwise people have been really excited about until they saw the execution thereof, or at least an artistic depiction of that plan, which includes Ghost, Red Guardian, the New Black Widow, Winter Soldier, U.S. Agent, Taskmaster, and of course, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character, who heretofore hasn't really done much of anything except appear in random Marvel projects. But I wonder if this is going to be about them trying to take down Bob Reynolds' The Sentry slash The Void, or if this Thunderbolts movie might actually play to the idea of subversion and parody by being a kind of anti-Avengers movie. I mean, we have essentially a stand-in for every member of the Avengers 
from the original first Avengers movie, and their job is to take down a god. I mean, that's basically just the plot of the first Avengers movie, but if it's about a bunch of unscrupulous characters who will kill or compromise their integrity, or at the very least, get their hands very dirty to get the job done, that sounds like it actually could be kind of fun, especially if Marvel's looking to, I don't know, try something different. It's the kind of thing that I believe the audience would flip the hell out over if Phase 4 didn't also include a weird Black Widow prequel, Shang-Chi, Eternals, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Thor 4, Black Panther 2, WandaVision, The Falcon Winter Soldier, Loki, What If, Hawkeye, Moon Knight, Ms. Marvel, and She-Hulk. Not to mention, of course, the Werewolf by Night and Guardians of the Galaxy specials, but those are specials and we can hardly count those. Which is all, of course, to say, however dryly, that Marvel may have used up some of their good favor from their audience by oversaturating the market, so to speak. But hey, maybe we'll get this entry for at least one movie. And that's kind of neat. I mean, is this where we are at this point? Just getting announcements and going, man, that's a thing that I've been waiting my entire life to see. I guess that's kind of neat. However, I think it's safe to say that for the most part, the outliers are the things that are not terribly good. And the things that are fine are still better than the things that we had before there was an MCU. So I got to maintain my perspective here. I mean, I had no expectations going into seeing Black Panther 2. And when Namor showed up, man... They really nailed it. And as you know, I'm not really the biggest Namor fan, but it was really cool to see him, and it was a really cool interpretation of the character that made him work in this world while also maintaining that character's integrity and their character. So DC Comics broke with recent tradition by actually telling people what they were going to do for the year, and they also managed to contact media outlets and tell them too, and even gave them graphics to correspond with the associated news. This is all to say, of course, that Dawn of DC is starting in January 2023 off the heels of the Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths event, which I have maintained since the beginning has had no support from either the editorial or marketing departments at DC Comics. But if you like DC Comics at all, I would highly recommend checking out at least the graphic they put out. It's very simple. It's not like it used to be. It used to be they'd hire Phil Jimenez to do a whole damn poster with all these Easter eggs and references to what's going to happen in the upcoming event, and then you'd have been wrong about half of them. Instead, you have what looks almost like a graph for a movie studio in what they should execute for the DC Cinematic Universe plan, and I think I've talked about this on at least two other podcasts, but I should point out, and I'll do so by showing you exactly what it says about the dawn of DC, in that it depicts stock, maybe even antiquated logos that represent books and character families in the DC pantheon, placed in some kind of sequence that has no corresponding numbers but suggests that it is a year-long plan starting at the left and moving our way right. And so the first thing we're seeing is the old Superman logo followed by a new logo that represents Doom Patrol. This is actually a pretty decent plan and again it would be a fantastic movie pitch because you start with a Superman movie not unlike how they started the DCEU but this time maybe with a tone that fits the character followed closely by Doom Patrol. Now Doom Patrol is an interesting thing because of course it's so different from the usual norm of DC but but does have its own following thanks largely in part to the Doom Patrol show. Now in the real world this means that there's going to be a Doom Patrol comic book coming out, but if you were to look at this thing as a movie plan, a Doom Patrol movie would not go amiss as it would be an interesting project that would almost certainly come under budget and also showcase a different side of the DC Universe. Now following the Doom Patrol logo we have two logos, this time the Green Lantern Corps logo and the Green Arrow logo, which for the first time in my life I noticed the head of the arrow is also a G. And of course my immediate thoughts were, oh, you're going to combine the Green Lantern and Green Arrow books and make a Hard Traveling Heroes 2.0 kind of series, or at the very least a kind of anthology book that showcases Green Lantern stories and Green Arrow stories. 
And in another reality, if we were looking at this thing as a multimedia rollout, a live-action updated adaptation of Hard Traveling Heroes would be under budget and still friggin' awesome. As is often the case, neither of those things is happening, and instead, in our reality, we're getting two Green Lantern books, each title starring either Jon Stewart or Hal Jordan, and a Green Arrow book starring the Green Arrow family looking for Oliver Queen. After this point, we have three more IP logos in the form of Batman, Shazam, and Hawkman, and then everything fades into darkness because it's halfway through the year and they probably don't want to give everything away. Or if you look at the solicitations for the upcoming Cyborg book, they have no idea who's going to be working on these books, and they want to buy themselves a little bit of time. At this time, I'll point out that beneath all these logos are robotic tendrils that fade into darkness as well, clearly belonging to Brainiac's skull ship. And this is a kind of fun visual indication that the whole thing is leading up to a major story that involves Brainiac as the antagonist, and I have to assume that these tendrils intersecting with the lines corresponding with these logos suggest that each of these different books that are coming out in January or throughout the year will of course have their own stories, but also have implications of a larger looming threat in the form of Brainiac. Again, if this was a cinematic universe rollout that was suggesting what the movie lineups were going to be that also implicated Brainiac as the big bad of the Justice League, uh, that would be kind of awesome as well. At the very least, we have indications of what is known as the Lazarus Planet, a bunch of new books, and they're saying forging the future one hero at a time. I honestly have no idea what Dawn of DC can be, but I do know that we'll probably have a clearer picture after the end of the Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths and the wrap-up issues that will kind of summarize everything and suggest what's happening next. On the publishing front and the marketing front, I can't really fault them. They're really doing a good job telling us exactly what they're doing for the year. The problem I have is there are too many questions. When we talked a little bit about this on our other show, Off the Rack, there were a ton of questions in the live chat asking questions like, are they canceling books? Are they reinstating other books? Who's going to be working on what? And while you want your audience to have some measure of curiosity, you also don't want them completely in the dark because in the face of utter confusion, they will abandon the story. But hey, this is the makings of a good idea. They got a lot of interesting concepts here, and they're telling you at least a little bit about what they're planning on doing with these ideas. Which is more than I can say for Marvel, and more than I can say for DC over the last couple of years. Now I have to assume that if the book is selling and it's out, it's probably going to continue. But what we do know about what's coming out, we're getting a new Superman number one from Joshua Williamson and Jamal Campbell, which holy crap am I on board for. We're also getting Adventures of Superman John Kent number one, which is basically a reboot of Action Comics. We're getting a reboot of Doom Patrol in the form of Unstoppable Doom Patrol from Dennis Culver and Chris Burnham. We're getting the Round Robin winner Superboy the Man of Tomorrow, which, if you don't remember, was that time they had all these different book ideas with all these different creative teams, and then they had the internet vote on them. Yeah, somehow actually this folds into the plan for Superman in a really organic way, and so that is also coming, but in the form of a six-issue miniseries from Kenny Porter and Yohoni Lindsay. Now you're getting your two Green Lantern books, no artist is attached, you got Hal Jordan from Mariko Tamaki, and Jon Stewart by Philip Kennedy Johnson. You're also getting that Green Arrow book I talked about from Josh Williamson and Sean Isaacs. You're getting a brand new Batman book in the form of Batman the Brave and the Bold from Tom King and Rob Williams with art by Mitch Garrods, Gillam March, and Gabriel Hardman and Dan Mora. Mark Wade and Dan Mora are skipping over from Batman Superman World's Finest to Shazam as a relaunch. You're also getting Tom King doing a Penguin book with Stefano Guadano and your Cyborg and Steelworks books, neither of which have any creative teams of any kind associated with them. Now these are of course new books and a new initiative coming out of the first half of 2023. After which time, I'm assuming we're going to get another announcement with more books and more creative teams associated. Now, given that we did discuss the passing of Kevin Conroy, I will mention that Jason David Frank tragically passed away over the weekend. And while I was not terribly familiar with the man's work, 
I do know that a large portion of not just my audience, but also my friends, were fans of his work, that I think it's necessary to at least acknowledge the fact that he contributed to a lot of people's happiness, and he will be sorely missed. I don't want to get into the particulars of his passing, except to say that logic escapes when people are in dark places, and it seems inescapable when you are there. It is easy to pass judgment when you are sitting in a place of health and watching someone from the outside without the benefit of knowing them inside and out. So I caution those who may feel hurt by those kinds of decisions that are misinterpreted as selfish. And for those unfortunate people who may feel those feelings and may find yourself in a trapped place, a place that is inescapable, that defies logic, that offers you solutions that on your best days you would never consider. If there is any light in the darkness, it is that there are people you may not even know who are there for you, who will listen, and who may offer comfort. If you think you're there, and you live in the U.S., just pick up your phone and press three numbers, 988. Don't go on Reddit, just pick up your phone and press 988. It's open 24 hours, and they speak multiple languages, and they are there for specifically that purpose. You're not inconveniencing anybody. It is for you, and for those exact times. Thanksgiving in the U.S. is right around the corner, and as such, we are celebrating. And when I say celebrating, I mean we are eating an inordinate amount of food. One of the most primary things that we are eating is, of course, the turkey. If you're not familiar, I like to deep fry my turkey, and it's something that I've been doing since 2003. Now, I myself have not personally deep fried the turkey every year since 2003, but I like to try and deep fry a turkey at least once a year since 2003. So next year, it'll be the 20 year anniversary since I have pretty much decided to put my and anyone nearby's lives on the line for delicious poultry. If you've ever been curious about trying it, what I would recommend is you do not start now. What you do instead is you watch an obscene amount of help videos that explain exactly how to do it and give you lots and lots and lots of prep time. Because while this is a thing that I've done since I was a teenager, I was a lot more careless back then, and I am a lot more cautious now. And even though I have had nearly 20 years experience doing it, and I am a lot more cautious now, the bulk of the injuries that I have sustained from this experience have been in the latter portion of my life. So I would exercise extreme caution, and I would even caution against even doing it, because it is a foolhardy endeavor, and it's not worth the risk. Okay, so here's what you do. What you want to do is you want to brine this bird. That is something you should do regardless of whether you are baking this bird or you are deep frying this bird. What you do is you get yourself a cooler and you get yourself at least two bags of ice. Then you get yourself about two gallons of cold water. You get about three cans of apple cider. You get a couple of rosemary leaves, some cloves of garlic, about, I'm going to say two, maybe two and a half of those cylinders of kosher salt, about two cups of brown sugar, five bay leaves, and you may want to peel about three large oranges. Throw all that into the cooler, 
and then you get your thawed bird. Don't get a frozen bird, or if it is frozen, thaw it. Then, when the bird is thawed, you go in there, you pull everything out of it, that includes the neck and the innards and all that stuff, and then you throw all of it into the cooler. You dump the bags of ice on top of that, and then you close the cooler. You're gonna wanna do this about 12 hours before you cook the bird. I've done it for longer, you run the risk of pickling it, which you really don't wanna do. So I'd say anywhere between six to 12 hours of brining. Then you just take it out, make sure it's bone dry, or at least as close as you can, and pop it into whatever vessel you're gonna cook it in. And that's my trick. I just saw a trailer for the new Avatar movie coming out on December 16th, and I've been making fun of Avatar since the first movie came out, since they announced the first movie. And I've been entirely validated, I think, culturally speaking, for making fun of that movie, despite the fact that the movie seems to resonate with a lot of people. And it's got me thinking, what is better, getting everything or wanting something? Like, should we have a Santa Claus series that answers the questions that the first three the Santa Claus movies didn't answer? Should we have at least one more Avatar sequel? Should we reboot Terminator one more time? Should Ridley Scott shovel one more pile of dirt on the corpse of the Alien franchise? There's something precious about owning a franchise or a universe that you feel resonates so deeply and personally with yourself. And it's really, I think, important for nerds out there who obsess over these kind of things to be able to answer their own questions or have their own paths forged without having an endless barrage of sequels and exploitative creatively bankrupt franchising hell not even creatively bankrupt let's go so far as to say that these are stories that are made by the original creator that really really need to be told like avatar avatar is clearly one of those things where the studio is like yeah we'll do it but clearly the only one who really believes in it is james cameron at this point but i think finding a universe that resonates with you especially at a young age especially one of your first is so informative and important for those of us who are on the cusp of creativity and exploration and it just opens up our minds into a world where we can really try something without being judged and without being told that we're wrong and without being given some alternative interpretation this is just something that we're like oh i like this thing and i'm going to imagine where it goes or the endless possibilities that are associated with it. I guess it's not so much that it's about whether those things should have sequels or continuations, but when we take that creative exploration and decide to forge our own paths. And that could take many different forms. Fan fiction, headcanon, derivative copies, or the rare nugget of originality. I mean, sometimes these answers that they come up with to questions that either we never asked or we always asked are thoroughly unsatisfying because they are in the pursuit of further franchisement. I mean, did we really need to know that the Ghostbusters stopped talking to each other shortly after Ghostbusters 2 and they all ended up hating and resenting Egon Spengler until he died? I mean, 
Tiffany and I just saw Clerks 3. Did we need any of that? I'll be honest, that one hurt. Speaking of pulling relics out of the past, here's something interesting that I really never expected to ever happen. I went to my comic book store the other day, Wednesday to be exact, and this particular shop does not put out their DC books on Tuesday, but they do have them in like a long box behind the counter. So if you want a DC book, you can just ask for it and they'll get it for you. But I feel bad about doing that. So what I like to do is just show up on Wednesday and by and large, if I haven't already put it in the pull list, it'll be there. So I walked around the store and the fine merchant pulled out my bag and he had a couple of items in the pull list, one of which was not the Batman Spawn Classics collection, but I was confident it was just going to be on the shelf somewhere. After all, it was $18 retail and it features only the two weirdest and most reviled crossovers in 90s crossover history, but much to my surprise, it was not there. And when I finally had the balls to ask him, he proceeded to tell me that he was as surprised as I was that there was a run on that book, and there were no more copies. Sure enough, I called nearby stores, and they had the same problem. Now maybe, maybe they were hedging their bets, maybe they ordered fewer copies, or maybe more people than we expect think that that was pretty rad, and picked it up. Now, of course, as the old adage says, you snooze, you lose, and I snoozed and I lost, but not only is this book available on Amazon, but more importantly, it opened my eyes to another opportunity coming in April of 2023, and that's the deluxe edition of Batman Spawn. Not only is it only a little bit more than the other hardcover, but it's oversized and it will include the Spawn Batman crossover that's coming out in December. So I'm going to get everything, and it'll be a little bigger. And it'll all be in one convenient location. But I guess this is all to say, I can't believe they're doing this. Like, I can't believe that in a month, I'm going to see a third Batman Spawn crossover comic book, and then later in the year, I'm going to have this oversized collected volume of two ridiculously weird and terrible crossovers and this third thing that I have yet to pass judgment about. But if the JLA Avengers reprint is any indication, and this DC-printed crossover collection has any data that might prove useful, this could, in essence open the door to further reprints of Marvel DC crossovers. Maybe just the DC versus Marvel crossover and the amalgam stuff to start, and then you go back and you grab the crossover classics. But I feel like there's a market for this, albeit a soon-to-be shrinking market. So let's jump on this. DC will have the data to justify reprints, reorders, and to be able to come to Marvel and say, yo, we got something here, something that both of us can benefit from. You know, everybody wants to say that these things will never happen, but if I'm hearing things like James Gunn and Dwayne The Rock Johnson all talking about Marvel DC crossovers and Chip Zdarsky working for Marvel and DC at the exact same time, basically working on 
a pair of flagship characters. And from all indications at both companies, the people who are working there have shorter memories than the folks who used to work there, who may have had some kind of instilled animosity towards the other side. We might just have some crossovers in our future, folks. As long as we indicate we want them. So, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm glad I didn't get a chance to get that Batman Spawn collection. And hell, get out there. Buy them up. Make them reprint more. Show them we want this, because Lord knows I do. But I can see you're pulling into work, so I'm going to let you go. But I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me today. And make sure to subscribe to the channel and click the bell for notifications so you know when this show comes out. Now, I should warn you that I'm probably going to take a break after the holiday, so I will see you in December. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop making videos over on YouTube.com slash ComicPop and, of course, here on YouTube.com slash returns. So make sure to check it all out because I promise you that we make something you're going to enjoy. See you next time. <laughs>